Well, again, a warm welcome to all of you and a special welcome to our guests today. We're so glad that you're here, whether you're online or in person. Welcome to Kingswood Church as we continue in this amazing sermon series, On Your Mark, Get Set, Go, claiming the urgency of following Jesus and moving toward Jesus. So um, last week we had a great sermon about the healing of the leper, and today you have heard already twice the story of uh, the two women Jesus heals, a 12-year-old girl and a woman who had been bleeding and been ill for 12 years. It's a powerful story. But I want to take a little bit of time to talk more about the book of Mark overall and what that book says to us and what we're learning. And I hope that as we have been in this series of studying the book of Mark in the New Testament and the Bible, maybe you've taken some time to, to read Mark and to spend some time reading the chapters and, and kind of spending time with it. I'm sure you have. Amen. Amen. Right. If you haven't, I encourage you to do it today. And if uh, the sermon is really boring to you, pull it out. It's the red book and you can have a full day of reading, right? So let's talk about Mark a little bit as we study it. There are four gospels. The word gospel means good news. Uh, and the four gospels are the first four books of the New Testament. There is certainly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and oh good, you're on top of it today, right? And so the four Gospels are different perspectives on the life and ministry and suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus. Certainly, uh, we all have our favorites. It'd be interesting, so I'm just going to see who, who's who's who. Whose favorite is Matthew? Anybody? Anybody have a favorite in Luke? That's mine. John and Mark. Well, and some of us don't have any favorites, okay? So... Um, that's fascinating. I expected it to be a little different, right? Uh, so let's, we're spending this time in Mark. Now, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. You probably knew that. So if you want to get a star and say, I've read one of the Gospels, Mark's your thing. You'll be done in a few chapters, right? Um, Mark has a sense of urgency and immediacy. In fact, all through Mark, you'll see this word, immediately, suddenly, hurriedly, and sometimes translate urgently. There's this deep sense of moving quickly through the gospel. What's also interesting about Mark is it doesn't have some of the stories we love, right? Like there's no birth story, no angels at Bethlehem. There's no uh, coming of the wise men. A lot of those stories that we love are not there. In fact, Mark begins with the baptism of Jesus, basically, and hits the road with a deep sense of urgency. Mark, this is, may be a surprise to you, by most scholars, is thought to be the first gospel. Even though it's not listed first, uh, it probably was the one written first. Now, there are a few folks in the New Testament world who would argue and say Matthew is the first, and we could have that conversation at Starbucks later today if you're skipping the Super Bowl, right? But let's, let's, let's talk about why Mark probably is the first. It has that sense of urgency, it has the baseline stories of Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection. And most importantly, elements of it are found in Matthew and Luke. In fact, many people believe that the writers of Matthew and Luke used Mark as the core for adding the, their, their other stories they had heard and the teachings of Jesus to flesh them out, right? Now, Mark was probably written around 70 AD, about 70 years after Jesus, a little bit give and take, but most people believe it was written after the temple had been destroyed. Now remember there were two temples. The first temple had been built by Solomon in the Old Testament in Jerusalem. And it was that temple that the Babylonians destroyed when they took the folks into exile. Later the temple is rebuilt 
And uh, Herod has been a major part of that rebuilding of the temple. It's quite extravagant, and that's the temple Jesus will encounter. But in, in around 70 AD, the, a lot of Jewish zealots began, is, began to hope to overthrow Rome and be free again. And so they revolted and had some victory, but in the end, the Romans came in and destroyed them, and to make their point, took the temple to the ground. So the Wailing Wall, which you see on TV today, or if you've been to Jerusalem, is the remnant of the second temple, all right? So I know you probably already knew that, but it's always good to know that. Well, if the temple has been destroyed by the Romans, then the reality is Judaism has had a real struggle and a real blow because the center of your religious life, the sacrificial system is gone, and now the synagogue is the center of life. In addition, both Christians and Jews who come out of the heritage of the temple are now trying to regroup and figure things out. And what better time to write down the good news, the messages, the stories of Jesus than now, and with a sense of urgency so they're not forgotten, and also because many Christians in that period, because of all the turmoil, believed that the end of the world was coming. And so Mark felt this need to get the gospel written down as basic as possible with a deep sense of urgency. You following me? Are we all good on the same page? Now, it's interesting, the Greek of Mark because you know all the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, right? You knew that, I know. But if not, I'll remind you. It was not written in English, so that's a shocker to some, but it's true. Uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. And, um, but the Greek of Mark, it's not, it's not simple, but it's more crude than like Luke or Matthew. Theirs has a lot more flowery language, if you will, and John certainly does. So again, it's a very basic piece. Now, where was Mark written? Well, some folks believe Mark was a follower of Peter and took many of the stories of Peter, and that's what wrote Mark, and that that could have happened in Rome or some other places. Some people believe it's a different Mark and that he was actually in Antioch of Syria or Antioch in another place and wrote that down outside of Jerusalem. Very few people believe that Mark was actually written in Jerusalem or in present-day Israel, because the audience seems to not have any knowledge or a good knowledge of Jewish practice and Jewish law. So Mark is constantly reminding them about the law and what it is, and is not really concerned with a lot of those practices like other Gospels. Whatever the case, this book is so important to the church because it gives a sense of urgency of following Jesus, committing to Jesus, and being a disciple of Jesus. It's interesting, it ends pretty briefly, and in fact, the last chapters are really added on to kind of flesh out the resurrection story. So its urgency is so important. So, let's, let's go on now to our story. Several years ago, uh, when I was in seminary, I was part of a, uh, a field education or internship, much like Clayton is doing now here at Kingswood, required by the seminary to be in a church of an ethnic background opposite that my own. And so I was really lucky and blessed to be appointed to Gladewater Road Missionary Baptist Church, an African-American church on the south side of Dallas near the Veterans Hospital. The pastor was uh, Reverend Pate, and he was a social worker by day, pastor by night and weekends, right? It was a very small church. It had been, they had taken a couple of homes and connected them together, and so it was a really small building. We take for granted this huge facility, amen? Theirs was very, very small. They had a food pantry, Bible studies, a small worshiping group of about 30, and for about five months, 
I was on staff with Brother Pate and some other folks at Gladewater Road Missionary Baptist Church. Now, my practice is always just to do, right? I'm a doer. So uh, Reverend Pate would give me things to do, like would you put together a curriculum? Would you teach a Bible study? Would you organize the choir room? You know, whatever. Anything I could do to get to know folks and be a part of the ministry of Gladewater Road. But one day he called me into the office and he said, you know, James, you're a good guy and you do a lot of tasks. You're a doer. But sometimes you miss the opportunities to see what God is doing in your midst. Sometimes you miss the interruptions that can help you to see and encounter and listen and learn from people because you're so busy doing. Amen? In fact, he said, you know, there have been opportunities where people have come to you during one of your tasks and they've interrupted you and you've been gracious, but you've turned back to the list to get it done. Anybody in the room? That was convicting to me. And so he encouraged me to pay attention to the interruptions, to be alert to who wandered in, to be attentive when people had something to say. And for me especially, in the context of a community that had known racism and oppression and such horror in the south side of Dallas, for me just to listen and relate was a critical part of that journey. And so I kind of re thought my whole process there and became very open to the interruptions. And they were sacred. Today's story is an interruption. Jesus has been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I know you know this, but I remind you that on the other side of Galilee are the ten cities, sometimes translated the Decapolis. Those are Gentile cities, non-Jews, much like most of us in the room, And Jesus often did spend ministry and witness time there as well. In fact, in the story before today, Jesus has encountered a man named Legion who has so many demons, it's out of control. Jesus casts out those demons, and this is how we know it's a Gentile territory. He casts them out into a herd of animals. Anybody know? Swine, pigs. You're not going to find that in a Jewish neighborhood. Amen, right? So the people in that particular Gerasim community said, we'd like for you to leave Jesus. This is too disruptive. Our, you know, basically, we're not going to have bacon for months to come, right? You know what I'm saying? And so Jesus goes back across the lake. He and his disciples go on to the Jewish side. And there they come, and they are in the midst of this village, and there is a huge crowd. Remember, in Mark, Mark Jesus is always saying, don't tell anybody. Sometimes we call it the messianic secret. Jesus is not ready to reveal fully who he is. And so Jesus is doing that, and and yet people continue to tell people about Jesus. And so when he gets out of the boat and gets off the dock, he's surrounded by all kinds of people. It's a huge crowd. In the midst of the crowd comes a man named Jairus. Okay, let's say that together like the kids did. I just love to hear it. Jairus, if you remember anything today, that might be it, right? Jairus is the synagogue president and leader, and that says a lot about who he is. You don't get to be the president or leader of a synagogue, which is a place of worship because the temple doesn't, will eventually not exist. The synagogue came to exist during the exile because the temple, first temple, was gone. You don't begin the president of the synagogue without some knowledge, some education, some wherewithal, probably some money, 
and notoriety, right? You see what I'm saying? Jairus had position and power. Jairus also knew that synagogue leaders, especially the Pharisees, a sect who was trying to preserve the law and make sure the Romans didn't get ticked off and destroy the whole group, they were against Jesus. So Jairus might have been in that camp. And Jairus might have originally said, I don't want much to do with Jesus, but something changed. His daughter became seriously ill. Now, I'm not a parent, but I know parents, right? And you as a parent, many of you in the room, know that when your child gets seriously ill, you're going to do whatever it takes for them to be well. Amen? You're going to go to immediate care. You're going to nag the doctor. You're going to be on the nurses. You're going to do whatever it takes for your child to be well. And Jairus is at that place. We don't know what the illness is, but we know that it's serious. Serious enough for Jairus to do several things. First of all, to leave his home. Second of all, not to send a messenger or a text or an email, but to show up in person. Wow, right? And then not only that, Jairus, a person of position and power, falls on his knees. Falls before Jesus, and the Greek implies he begs Jesus to come and heal his daughter. Jairus is so desperate for the restoration of his little girl that he is willing to do whatever it takes to get Jesus to go. And that sense of urgency is present in the Greek. And Jairus and the disciples and Jesus, they all take off. And they urgently head toward Jairus' house. So as they're running, as I said to the kids, and they're getting there as fast as they can, and it's urgent, and I'm sure Jairus is trying to clear the way. There's this huge crowd, and you know he's probably ahead. Get out of the way, get out of the way. It's like a horrible day at Six Flags. Anybody, right, you know? And suddenly, we are introduced to someone else, a woman who's much older, a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, 12 years of bleeding. She has spent all of her money. She's taxed out her insurance. Blue Cross dropped her last week. She can't get anything. She has no resources. And she's been ill for 12 years. And in fact, all the treatments, all the doctors, all the experiments, all the tests at Northwestern, you know what I'm saying? They've actually made her worse. And she, like Jairus, is desperate. And sometimes those of us in the room know when we are seriously ill and we've tried everything we can, we are most often willing to do whatever it takes. Amen. So here's this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and she hears Jesus is coming, and I think probably she has learned of Jesus already, and maybe knows about the touching and healing of the leper, and maybe she's heard other stories like uh, Peter's mother-in-law, I don't know, but she knows Jesus has the power to heal her, and by God, whatever she has to do, she will do. And so here is this woman who's seriously ill, bleeding for how many years? She crawls through the crowd... And she says, if I can just touch the cloak, the coat, the slacks, the jeans of Jesus, I will be healed. And she does. And the bleeding stops. And in fact, Scripture says her body is made whole. Not only does the bleeding stop, but every other related thing to it is erased and she is made whole. Amen? Hello, come on. Amen? She is restored. 
fact, the word there is sozo. She is healed. She is saved. She is restored. Now, what's interesting is Jesus senses that power has been sent out from him to someone else. This is important. I know you probably already had it figured out. But in the ancient world, sometimes people thought objects healed. And so the important part of Mark writing this down is this isn't about his coat. It's about him. It isn't about what cloth has been touched or if this is a sacred relic. It's about Jesus. And because she had such faith that she could reach out and touch him and be healed, that's why Mark wants you to know that Jesus knows something has happened. Now remember, Jairus is still clearing the crowd, right? Right, parents? Still trying to get Jesus to his daughter. But Jesus stops. Frankly, if I were Jairus, I'd be, hey, what's your problem? Let's keep moving, right? He's, he's, he loves his daughter. But Jesus, Jesus is interrupted by this woman's faithfulness, and Jesus stops. And I just love this part of the story. It's just hilarious to me. He says in this huge crowd, I mean, it's a huge crowd. People have been touching him all day. And he says, who touched me? Now, I want you to think about the power of this woman touching him. If you go to Leviticus 15, which you could do today as well, you'll learn that she was ritually impure, just like the leper of last week. In fact, she shouldn't have even been in the crowd. She shouldn't have been touching anybody, especially a man, because she would create uncleanliness for him. And for several days, he couldn't go to temple or synagogue worship. She was taking a risk not only of her personal life, but all of the ridicule that she might receive. Who touched me? And the disciples, the followers, and I hate to tell you this, often in Mark, the disciples are the church. That's you. That's me. And so the disciples don't see what's happened here or even get a sense of what's going on. So they just say, are you kidding, Jesus? We're packed out here. that We can't even see each other. What kind of question is that? And I'm sure Jairus is like, come on, let's go. Somebody touched me. And then the woman, she does a very brave thing to me. I don't know if I would have done the same. She could have easily just wandered back in the crowd. Gone home, healed, reapplied for Blue Cross Blue Shield. You know, she could have done her life, right? But she knows something's happened. And so she comes forward and she falls before Jesus. Remember, Jairus fell before Jesus. She falls before Jesus and she says, it was I. And Scripture tells us she told the whole truth. Now, I can imagine Jairus over here, like, we don't have time for this. And it's not like, it's me, let's get this done. She tells him the whole truth, which, in my opinion, is she tells him her whole story. He takes the time to stop and be interrupted and to hear what's going on with this woman. And when she finishes the story, he doesn't say, well, don't touch me again, or next time make an appointment, or could you do it what's convenient, or would you just show up on Sunday, or you'll need to join the church, or you better do this or that, Right? He says this word, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now we just read that, right? Oh, sweet Jesus, thank you so much. He calls her daughter. She is his family. She is no longer on the outside, she's on the inside. And she's not on the inside just as a member at Kingswood Church. She's his sibling, she's his daughter, she's his beloved. Beloved. 
Do you see how powerful that is? She is restored beyond her illness. She is whole beyond her bleeding. Her whole life has been transformed in this holy interruption where Jesus takes the time to say, who touched me? But Jairus is still here like, we got to get going and we've got a lot to do and there's a deep sense of urgency and what about my daughter? And friends of Jairus come and break their way through the crowd and they say, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't bother Jesus anymore. Leave the rabbi alone. Don't waste his time. It's all over. We've called Glickard's funeral home. They've already are on their way. United Methodist women have already dropped off 10 casseroles. We are, it's all over. Just leave Jesus alone. It's done. Remember, sometimes the people in the story are the church. That's you. That's me. But Jesus says, don't listen to them. Let's go. And so he goes, and as he gets closer, he kind of throws out the rest of the crowd. And as he gets there, he takes James, John, and Peter. They're going to appear with him later in a story we'll preach about in two weeks. Kind of what I call the big three, right? They get to the house, and of course, people are already wailing and mourning, and it's a spectacle. And Jesus says, what's going on here? And they said, well, she's dead. And Jesus says, she's not dead. And much like the disciples, the crowd of people at the home of Jairus, they laugh at Jesus. It's the same Greek word when people laughed at him at his crucifixion. It is scorn. And it's similar to the way the disciples responded when he said, who touched me? Remember, sometimes the people in the story are the church and that's you, and that's me. Laughing at the possibility of something amazing. So Jesus takes the mom and dad, the three disciples. They go into the room. The girl is laying there. She's obviously dead. And he says these words, Talitha kum, which can be translated, little girl, get up, or my daughter, get up, or uh, it's time to get up, just like you would say to your kids in the morning. Amen? And she does. And she walks around, which is important because she didn't just float up like some sort of zombie movie, right? She literally gets up and walks around, and everyone rejoices because she has been restored. This daughter, get it? And how old is she? Yeah, the woman who was bleeding by 12 years, the same age as the girl who's just been restored to life. And then if you want to get practical about resurrection and new life, are you ready for this? Jesus doesn't have the angels sing. Jesus says, he just does something so amazing. He says, and now give her something to eat. Because remember, ghosts don't eat. People do. Especially people who've been raised from the dead. I love this story because it says to us that sometimes the interruption is where we encounter the word of Jesus and what he says to our lives. Sometimes in the most impossible circumstances, when we think death is the final word, life is actually the way of Jesus. It's complex and it's messy because sometimes we pray for healing and it doesn't come in the way we want to. And sometimes we pray for people not to die and they still do, amen? But in the midst of this story and this holy interruption, we encounter the urgency of Jesus saying to the church, stop laughing, stop scorning, stop unbelieving, and see the potential and the possibility and the new life that is found in me. 
Sometimes the people and the disciples are the church. And that's you. And that's me. But sometimes the church sees holy interruption and encounters people on the edges and margins and believes that something new and amazing and resurrecting can happen. And hopefully, that's you. And that's me.